Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing Show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. Now, here's Dr. Arlene. Thank you, Virgil. In tough economic times, it is especially important to implement my right fit method, which will enable you to win without competing in your career and in your life. I carefully select my guests who are powerful users of my right fit method. A key component of that method is passion, our career fuel, the impetus and foundation of career success. My guest today, Suzanne De Laurentiis, is soaked in passion, but passion is not enough. Suzanne and my other guests know how to harness their passion. They excel in managing the process and walking down the right fit road to reach their goals. They know how to recognize right fits. They know how to recognize wrong fits. They know whether they can fix or not fix a wrong fit. They know when to walk away. They assume responsibility for their successes and failures. They say to themselves, it's all up to me. Throughout my own career as a medical school dean to heading a $60 million education program at the National Institutes of Health and as the founder and CEO of Barrow Global Search, Inc., I have observed that figuring out right fits is extremely difficult for many people to do. As a result, they continue taking the wrong fit road and wonder why they are in wrong fit marriages, wrong fit careers, or wrong fit homes. The solution is simple. Stop asking who is the best and what is the best. Stop comparing and contrasting. If all your choices are wrong and you pick one which you designate as the best, you made a wrong choice. Picture a barrel of rotten apples. Grab the best one. What do you have? A rotten apple. To learn more about my Right Fit Method, continue listening to today's show. And after the show, visit winwithoutcompeting.com to read excerpts from my book. On to my guest today, independent filmmaker Suzanne De Laurentiis, head Suzanne De Laurentiis Productions. De Laurentiis follows in the footsteps of her family of successful filmmakers producers, and directors. Her company, Suzanne De Laurentiis Productions, 
independently produced Tenth and Wolf, Brothers by Blood, Silicon Towers, Pocket Ninjas, Skate Dragons, Twin Towers, Graduation Day, Out of the Black, Shut Up and Kiss Me, A Month of Sundays, The Vegas Connection, Mutant Man, Swiss Family Robinson, Mannequin 2, Rocky 5, Transylvania, and New Hope Manor, as well as many others. The film, Tenth and Wolf, a drama based on the investigations of mob informant Joe Pistione, a.k.a. Donnie Brasco, won numerous awards. Suzanne De Laurentiis has won the prestigious Opal Award from Women in Film, a Lifetime Award for Music in Independent Films from the Hollywood Fame Awards, and the Distinguished Founders Award for Excellence in Filmmaking from the Palm Beach International Film Festival. De Laurentiis started the Cinema City International Film Festival, which debuted at Universal Studios in 2007 and was rated one of the top 25 film festivals by Movie Maker Magazine in the festival's second year. She conducts lectures and workshops, mentoring up-and-coming actors and filmmakers. Suzanne has helped hundreds of talented people jumpstart their careers. At the Hyatt Regency Century Plaza, the fifth Cinema City International Film Festival took place in September, featuring the film Like Dandelion Dust, starring Barry Pepper, Cole Hauser, and Mira Servino. I am delighted to report that I attended this outstanding event. I will unravel Suzanne De Laurentiis' fascinating career from her childhood roots to her teenage acting career to her acclaimed singing nightclub act at age 20. She was mentored by cousin Frankie Avalon to acclaimed filmmaker. Welcome, Suzanne, to Win Without Competing. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Barron. It's just a pleasure to uh, be on the air with you this evening. My pleasure as well. You were born and raised in New Jersey. What did your parents do? Uh, my father was a former pro football player, uh, and then he was retired and a school teacher and a guidance counselor. He also headed up a, a work program in the high school. And my mother was a teacher and writer and kind of a part-time stay-at-home mom. What was your family home life like as you were growing up? I have very fond memories of my childhood, uh, Dr. Barrow. I had great parents. Uh, we always had plenty of things to do. We weren't sort of the kind of sit-around, docile-type family that didn't do much. We always had a lot of get-up-and-go, a lot of activities, and we inherited, I should say, a lot from my father. But my sister and I were both very aggressive, ambitious, and tenacious, kind of a head-banging AAA personalities. <laughs> Very much so. Now, your sister, was she older or younger? My sister, her name is Jean DeLorenis, and she was three years older than, than me. Is she also in the filmmaking arena? Um, actually, my sister um, had a degree in marketing, and she did help me with some distribution earlier in my career when I was making independent films, but now she's a very successful real estate agent. 
even in these troubled times, she's successful. That's outstanding. Yeah, very much so. Um, she's held her own and, and has done very well. We all kind of have that uh, that workaholic, successful gene running through our veins. Well, I think it's wonderful. Uh, at what age was your passion for the arts seeded? I'd have to say I was pretty young, uh, seven, eight, nine years old, you know, dance and ballet and getting involved in arts and theater in school, and I, I always had a passion uh, for music and for the arts. Now, did your par- parents encourage that? Did they take you to all kinds of events as you were growing up? Did you listen to music at home? Oh, very much so, and I was very fortunate. Um, I grew up in Mount Holly, New Jersey. It had a very good school system where the schools were acclimated to performing arts and arts programs. So I stayed very active in school, and as you had mentioned, my cousin was Frankie Avalon. So I grew up with my father and my mother taking us to see Frankie playing in the nightclub. So I was sort of very tapped into to the music business at an early age going to see him. How did you feel? I mean, what was the age difference approximately? Um, Frankie was closer to my mother's age, so I was pretty young um, in in the late 60s and early 70s when Frankie was very popular on the nightclub circuit, but he still is. I mean, he still has a, a terrific show, and I still go to see him whenever I can, but... Oh, it, it was thrilling and wonderful, and of you know, of course, being related, you know, I always said to my parents, "Well, that's what I want to do. You know, I, ah. I want to be a singer, I want to be an actress, I want to be in the nightclub business, I want to be in movies." Um, you know, that, that was a nice jumping off for me to say, "Yes, that, I want to do what he does." So he was a wonderful role model for you then. Well, yes, and and it was nice because he, you know, at that time growing up, you know, he was very popular, so. You know, he he was very much in the spotlight, and, you know, I kind of followed his career and things that he was doing and things that he was involved in. I know that he was an important influence. Who Mm -hmm. else influenced you and mentored you? Well, I mean, Dino De Laurentiis, of course, was a huge idol for me. I mean, I really didn't get too much, I can't say I really had too much uh, experience mentoring with him. I did work at his studio down in North Carolina in the early 80s, but, I, you know, I was certainly aware of him and, you know, knew what his accomplishments were and, you know, sort of idolized him as a filmmaker. But, gosh, there were so many. I, you know, idolized uh, Ed Wood and Roger Corman. And, uh, you know, I kind of liked sort of the independent sort of offbeat things. You know, Orson Welles I was a big fan of. So there were quite a few people in the late 60s and early 70s and late 70s when I was growing up that, that I thought very much of. Now, Dino was a cousin. Is that correct, Suzanne? Yes, a distant cousin, yes. Now, I know when we talked prior to the show, uh, you had mentioned that your mother had an autoimmune disease. Yes. Can you tell us about that and how that influenced your development? Well, you know, oddly enough, when people ask me about that, you know, I had a great mother. She was always there for me. Um, I I have to say I owe a lot of my success to her support and, and, you know, her always being, you know, my biggest fan and, but, you know, I, I remember years of her being in bed a lot or, you know, she always had these elaborate birthday parties for me growing up and then she'd be in bed two days later because she'd be inflamed and not feeling well, so... 
it wasn't unusual for me um, to have my mother not feeling well. She she didn't feel well a lot. However, as I mentioned to you before, her favorite expression was, "If I didn't feel well, if I didn't do anything because I didn't feel well, I'd never do anything." So, I kind of she was sort of my mentor then when I was diagnosed later on of just always moving forward and doing what you wanted to do no matter how bad you feel. Now, when you were diagnosed, uh, you were diagnosed with lupus. Well, then it was still a gray area. You know, lupus wasn't so much of a disease as it was a symptom of, you know, uh, of several different things. And basically autoimmune system is when your body makes too many antibodies, so it starts attacking itself. It attacks your organs and your healthy tissues. So it, it kind of runs the gamut. I mean, technically it's autoimmune system slash lupus, but, but basically it's it's an overactive autoimmune system. Now, you were age 21 when you were diagnosed. Yes, early 20s, as I remember, early 20s. Mm-hmm. How did you respond recognizing what your mother had gone through, even though she had an outstanding attitude, obviously, and didn't let, her, didn't let it keep her down? Um, How did you respond I'll admit at first it was it was a little devastating for me just because I was so used to just, like I said, AAA, go, go, go personality, you know, very excitable, very high strung. Uh, you know, I wanted to accomplish a million things, and, and it was sort of hitting the wall. You know, well, now these are things that you can't do. You know, you, you can't work an 18-hour day anymore. You know, you have to take breaks. You have to take naps. You have to take medication, you know, you're going to have periods where you have to have surgery to fix things and these things won't work. And at first it was pretty hard. I remember going through a pretty bad depression there for a little while, maybe for a year, but I was very fortunate to have a a terrific therapist that sort of taught me as well how to, you know, stand on my feet and, and just not let it affect me. And even to this day, and that was, gosh, in the mid-80s, even till this day, I still use a lot of her techniques to to get me through some of the bad days. And I used to read a lot of Louise L. Hay books. <laughs> ah. Yes, yeah, very, very helpful. So. so you were very lucky to have her in your life. Yes. Yes. And your mother, what? how did she respond and how did she support you? Well, kind of the nice thing, which is still the case between us, is that we used to get all these kooky strange ailments, you know, just strange things that were very hard to diagnose. And, and you know, no matter what I would have, she would say, oh, I had that, or I know what that's like. And it, it's just kind of, I guess, a buddy system for me that there was always someone there who knew exactly what I felt like and knew who exactly, you know, what I was going through. And that's important because I think a lot of people that are afflicted with, with incurable diseases, you know, some of them don't have family members or, or people that they know that, that are in that situation all the time. So sort of to a degree, I was very fortunate that I had that support with her. Now, tell us about the times that you were appearing on Broadway early when you were young and about the shows in which you appeared. Um, well, in in my early teens, I want opera was really important to me. I was studying classically um, at PCPA uh, with Gloria Lyholtz, who was from the Philadelphia Academy of Performing Arts, and I, I wanted to to study opera in New York and. 
uh, Carla Minate, who was at Carnegie Hall, who was the best of the best, had trained a lot of big stars, Diana Ross, Barbara Streisand, just about everybody, including my cousin Frankie Avalon. I was able to get an audition with him through Frankie, and I got accepted. So while I was studying with him, I was always auditioning for shows in the city and trying to get in shows in the city. And um, as I mentioned before, I was lucky enough to work with Steve Allen, who was just a brilliant, brilliant talent. I did his show, This Could Be the Start. After that, I did a lot of bus and truck tours, um, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off, um, uh, and then some of the other musicals, Celebration, Sound of Music, Fiddler on the Roof. You know, they, those were all big shows in the 70s, so um, I, I had quite a lengthy uh, a career in kind of the musical theater realm. And then also, too, you were in film and on television. Mm-hmm. What did you enjoy about the theater and film and television that helped to sort of set the stage for your future? Well, I mean, obviously anybody who has a passion for the arts loves to perform. And at that time, the performing was very important to me. It, It really was my love and my passion. And then I think I got to a point where I started to feel um, not frustrated, but I think I felt that I wasn't in control of of sort of my destiny or my situation because, as you know, when when you're a performer, you kind of have to rely on other people giving you an opportunity. You know, you have the whole audition circuit and you're always trying to get your work and you're always waiting for someone to, you know, quote-unquote discover you or notice you or give you an opportunity. So... I, I kind of felt like I wanted to be in a different position where I was creating my own opportunity and I sort of didn't have to rely on other people to, you know, to grant me the opportunity of being in their shows or being in their movies. And that's when I got into writing and, uh, writing and directing and producing. Well, I think that uh, Blog Talk Radio was correct when they featured you today as a Today's Pick on the homepage. And underneath your photo, the photo of you and Tenth and Wolf, Mm -hmm. they titled it Woman in Charge. (laughs) And I believe that they are absolutely correct because early on you're basically saying that you wanted to manage the process. And that's a key component of my right fit method. Mm-hmm. So I'm delighted that you recognize this in yourself because sometimes people continue working for others, not right. understanding why they're so frustrated. Right, right, right. That's that's actually, Dr. Barrow, a very good point. Um, whenever I'm mentoring young people or lecturing, the first thing people say to me is, well, what do you suggest I do? You know, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And I tell them you have to do things on your own. You can't rely on other people and working at other companies and that hoping that someone's going to notice you or promote you or, you know, or give you the things that you want out of your career. You have to do it on your own. So that was a perfect fit for me. I, I didn't want to spend the next 10, 20 years of my career waiting for someone to give me an opportunity. I was going to create the opportunities for myself. Do you think that that mindset uh, had an effect on your becoming or not becoming an opera singer? 
Well, I think, you know, in the late 70s, uh, you know, opera was a very different animal than it is now. Um, it was much more rent regimented, much more restricted. Um, it wasn't nearly as commercial as it is now. I mean, I think uh, some of the opera companies or the classical companies I had looked into in Manhattan in the late 70s were paying 90 a week. You know, and, and at the time, I was um, singing in Atlantic City in the late 70s and early 80s and in the casinos and making, you know, a 1000 or $2,000 a week. So at that time, you know, the opera and the classical singing was very important to me, but, you know, I, I had other things I wanted to do in my life, and I knew I wouldn't be able to to do those things unless, you know, I was in a financial position where maybe I could take some risks that, that other people maybe wouldn't take. Do you do any singing now at all? Yes, I do. Um, I don't really perform too much publicly anymore. I mean, occasionally I will if if the opportunity is, is, is right, but um, I, not as much as I would like to. I think um, as I'm getting a little older now, I'll probably go back to to maybe doing some more singing, but um, unfortunately, the movie business is extremely time-consuming, so um, I, I spend most of my time working in film now, and, and the film festival. In terms of Frankie Avalon, take us back to your nightclub act at age 20. How did he help you and encourage you to do that? Well, you know, my father w would have conversations with him. I would as well. And, you know, he would say, if, if you want to do it, you have to do it. You know, if that's what you want to do, you know, get some musicians together, get a band, you know, write your show. And and at the time, my mother was my manager, was starting to manage me more, and she had a lot of connections in Atlantic City. So it wasn't, it actually wasn't a very difficult transition for me to get into the nightclub business. Um you know, and and using Frankie's name at times if, you know, there were some rooms I wanted to get into. And, and at the time, his manager was Dick Fox, and my father would talk to him occasionally, and he would give him advice. But, again, you know, you, you have to do it on your own. You know, you, you can't sit around and wait for other people to give you opportunity. You have to do it on your own. So for how long did you actually do that? Was that a short-term gig, or how did that all work? Um, I did it for about five or six years. Um, I did it full-time, probably I would say for two or three years, but, you know, my mother, being my manager at the time, had given me some good advice and said, look, you know, if, if you really want to be in the film business and that's what you want to do, you've, you've got to get out of the nightclub business because this is where you'll be the rest of your life. And she was right. A lot of my other friends that, you know, were in that type of business are, are still there, and I'm so glad that, you know, I kind of rolled the dice and left maybe – you know, a somewhat steady, lucrative uh, employment situation to to take risks and start making small independent films and, and kind of going that route. Before you started your own company in 1984, you were an accomplished writer, producer, and director of short films, commercials, and music videos. Yes. Where did you work, and what did you learn about yourself? <laughs> as you were working for others, because you mentioned early on it wasn't right. for you. Right, right. Um, that's kind of interesting, Dr. Barrow. I took whatever I could get in the beginning. Um, someone would say to me, well, you know, I'm a singer and I have this idea for a music video, and 
you name it, I took it. Um, and commercials, you know, I knew people at different companies that said, well, we have these ideas from these commercials. I would undercut everybody else. Um, even if I made didn't make any money, it didn't matter. I just wanted to build a resume and, and get some experience under my belt. Um, and then, uh, you know, I did work as a line producer in UPM for other companies. But, uh, you know, as I had mentioned before in our earlier conversations, I – it was important to me to have a, a nice, pleasant working atmosphere. Um, when I went to work and some of the other production companies sort of had that that rigid stigma, you know, old saying, you could cut it with a knife, it was so stressful, and and it just wasn't for me. I, you know, I wanted to, to have a much different environment, and then that's when I decided, well, I'm going to have my own company because I want to be able to give – up-and-coming people opportunities, and I, I want to have more of a pleasant, I mean, believe me, I'm tough at, at getting what I need to get, and it's important that we make our days, but I like people to be in, in somewhat of a pleasant atmosphere. If you had, if you would ask some of the people who work with you to describe how you work with people, what would what would they say? Well, I think they would probably say, obviously, I'm extremely aggressive, go-getter. Um, I like you know, everybody to get a lot accomplished in one day. We move pretty quickly, and I, maybe you call it a little bit of attention deficit. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm a mover and shaker, and I, you know, if I'm if I staying in a situation that's taking too long or, you know, I'm always ready to move on and move ahead. So I think at times some people, you know, may make the comment about uh, I go a little too fast, but uh, that's just my personality. I'm a go, go, go. <laughs> go, go, go type of gal. Now, how is that affect in terms of that approach, the go, 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 mm. how has that changed over the years? I'm trying to uh, kind of keep that at a minimum. I, I, I truly do. I, I know one of the things I was criticized for in business was I had to cut my list down because I would get up every morning and make this long 20-page list of everything I want to accomplish in that day. And if I went to bed and there were five things on the list that weren't accomplished, I would think it was the end of the world. So um, I'm, I'm a little past that now. My lists are only one page long. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm a little better than I used to be. Well, that's good. That's good. You've changed where you've placed your bar, so to speak. Yes, yes. But that took learning. Someone had to teach me how to do that. So now, did someone actually teach you that, or you recognized it yourself? Well, I knew that that was a little bit of a problem, and I did have to have someone say, look, you know, this is how you have to... You know, sometimes you have to take a deep breath and stop. You know, you have to allow yourself breaks. You have to, you know, take some downtime. And and, and that's important for everyone, I believe, as human beings. We, we have to do that. But then again, I love what I do. So it's not like, oh, my gosh, I have to go to work this week. How horrible. I can't wait to go on vacation. Even when I do go on vacation, I take scripts with me. You know, I make notes about ideas I have. So... Um, it's I don't know I guess it's kind of the lesser of two evils for me. Well, your well your head is always racing, right? Yes. Isn't that what's yes. going on? Yeah. Yes. When you're highly yes. creative, that's what happens. Your head doesn't stop. Right. 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 Yes. Very much so. 
Now, when we also talked before the show, you told me that you recognized when you first started working prior to establishing your own company that you have a talent for raising money. Yes. I'd love to hear what the secrets are. (laughs) After all, there's only the two of us here. Okay. What are your secrets in terms of how you package yourself to pitch? Because that's a frequent uh, thing that people find very difficult to do. Right, right. Yes, it is. You know, I wish I had a good answer for you. I guess... I guess I'm I, and I've probably raised over a hundred million dollars in my career, um, not only for my own projects but helping people with other projects. I think because I I never let an opportunity go by. Um, I I remember a funny circumstance where I was having some surgery for my lupus. I was being wheeled into the operating room, and the anesthesiologist was saying, oh, you know, so what do you do for a living? And I said, well, I'm a movie producer. I'm independent, and he said something like, oh, gee, you know, I always found that interesting. I always thought that might be something that, you know, I want to get involved in. And then it was kind of like, you know, the other doctors were laughing. I was like, wait a minute, don't put me to sleep yet. <laughs> Let's talk about this. <laughs> um, yeah, you sort of, you know, you kind of, th- I guess with me, I sort of throw out the ball and it just sticks with people. And then, but but then too, you know, I've worked hard over the years of my career gaining a reputation that people are very happy with you know, with the movies that they get made, and and I'm one of the few independents that does development. Not everybody does that. So, you know, I'll have a client call me and say, I've had a fascinating life. I want to turn it into a movie. What do I do? You know, and and not a lot of people have that um, at their companies or offer that. So that's always very enticing for investors that, you know, they can have absolutely nothing except a great story and sit down over dinner and pitch it to me for an hour, and then I can say to them, you know what, I think we have something here. So... Um, that's a little bit of a luxury for me. But but in answer to your question, I, I don't know. I guess I just have that um, that knack, that sales knack or something. I don't know. Well, obviously, if you've raised more than $100 million, you have a pretty darn good sales knack here. I right, mean, it's, right. it's, it's, do you think that you observed anyone along the way that excelled in pitching? I would have to say my father was terrific at sales. Um, he was super aggressive, ambitious. Um, he's passed away now, but um, I kind of joke with my mother. I'm so much like him. Um, he was a hustler as far as working hard and always making a buck. And um, he just had tons of tenacity. And He was aggressive and ambitious, and I'm very much like him. Now, you're very much uh, committed to being an independent filmmaker. Yes. And you basically indicated early on that you had a blueprint of the right fit business. Mm -hmm. Could you articulate the components of your blueprint? Well, several factors were important to me in my business. Number one, it was important to me that people were happy in their working atmosphere and happy with their job because when people are happy, they perform better. I've always had that 
you know, that saying that if people are really happy, then they're going to be terrific. And if people feel good about that, what they do and they're congratulated and complimented on a good job, they're only going to do a better job. Um, and it was important to me that I could do what I wanted to do. If I wanted to make a $100,000 horror movie, that's what I'm going to make, if that's what I feel like making in the spring. And if I feel like doing a $15 million mafia drama, then that's what I'm going to make. And I never really followed a criteria of people saying, well, well, you have to do things like this, or these are the kind of movies you have to make, and these are the people that have to work with you. I, I always, always sort of uh, did what worked best for me, and in turn, it worked best for the company. I think that kind of gets into your brand. Would you agree? Oh, very much so. Very much so. Tell us about your brand, well, as I mentioned before, we were very strong in development at my company. And when people say to me, well, how do you get a movie made or or how does it get off the ground, it's the development period that's important. When people say to me, well, how do you get someone to write a check for 4 or $5 million to make a movie? Well, because the movie's ready to go. It's it's a terrific written script. All the business plans are in line. The actors are attached. The locations are nailed down. Everything is ready to go in, in that year or two-year development period. And I, I kind of feel like that's sort of the strong point of the branding of my company is that anything that we're, we're ready to go into pre-production or ready to raise money for could start shooting the next day. And not many other companies have that. You know, when they're out raising money, you know, they're still working on their pitch or they're they're just getting the script together. And, you know, personally, if I was an investor, I'd be very leery about handing someone a check for 10 or $12 million if they weren't absolutely had all their ducks in the line and were ready to go. And that's one of the strong points, I feel like, the branding in my company that has made me so successful over the years. Well, you'll be delighted to know that I think I figured out uh, something about your talent for raising money. And that is, if the development is so strong and that you right. set the stage to such an extent that production is, you're ready just to jump into it, am I correct that you use that as a basis to help you raise money? Oh, absolutely, and I also pride myself on organization, which is so important, uh, and I always teach this to young people. If I have two or three movies going at once or two or three clients that I'm dealing with, you always return their phone call within five minutes. You always answer an email within that day. You, it's Communication is key whenever you're dealing with people with money. And I think that's the biggest, um, some of the mistake that, that young filmmakers make is that they don't always keep that organization of of contact. Not to mention the fact it's very important, uh, Dr. Barrow, which I pride myself on, is that when you say you're going to do something, you do it. And it's not two weeks later or five months later. If you say to someone, today is Monday, by Wednesday, this is going to be signed, sealed, and delivered, and in front of you, that it's done. And that, I find, is the most important thing with, with raising money and clients, is that when you say you're going to do something, you follow through, and it's done when you say it's going to be done. That way you've developed trust. Yes, very much so. And I expect you probably have long-term relationships, too, 
uh, with the people that have been providing the money over the years. Yes, as well as my vendors and people that provide production services for me as well, because that's always a sticking point for people. You know, a lot of independent producers at times have trouble paying their bills or vendors aren't paid on time or people are calling for their money, and we're just the opposite. Most of the time I pay my clients and vendors in advance, so they they trust me and they know if I say, again, you know, that I'm going to do something, they know I'm going to do it and follow through. What motivated you to start the Cinema City International Film Festival? Um, I think because I've, I've been on the board of other big successful film festivals, and believe me, they're fabulous. My mother and I used to drag around to festivals together, and I had the pleasure of being honored at quite a few over the last couple years. But I just felt that, you know, there were things that I could do that that would be a little more beneficial for independent filmmakers. For example, whenever I would go to other film festivals, the filmmakers ne- could never walk the red carpet and do press. It was only the big celebrities. And at the big award shows, you know, the the big celebrities were being honored and getting awards, and the f- independent filmmakers were just kind of sitting in the background watching. So... It was important to me at my festival that all the filmmakers walked the red carpet and and they all got uh, you know the press and publicity and and would leave the festival with press kits that would help them in turn raise money. And at our awards ceremony and gala, we have the big celebrities give awards to the filmmakers instead of the celebrities getting the awards. So that the filmmakers get the press and PR with the celebrities. And we also raise money for severely injured American soldiers returning from Afghanistan and Iraq. So that that's a passion of mine as well. So I just kind of wanted to do things a little different. Well, I think the fact that you're a divergent thinker has obviously had a tremendous impact on your career. You don't think like everyone else. You want to do things differently. Right, right. I, that's actually my favorite uh my favorite uh, saying is think out of the box. If you right. want to get ahead, think out of the box. Have you had success in terms of imparting that to the young people that you've been mentoring? Do they get it? You know, that's an interesting question. Some do and some don't. Um, unfortunately, when you're dealing with people who are um, I, what's the, the the left brain is the creative side of the brain, isn't that right? Isn't it? I think you're, so. Yeah, you're left brained. Um, so when you have somebody who's very very creative, sometimes their ego gets tricky, and you know sometimes with young people you feel like you're beating them over the head. But then I have to take a step back and say, well, okay, then you can try it your way. But my door's always open <laughs> when you have to come back and say, oh my gosh, it didn't work. What what, what shall I do? So. Because I know that with my right fit method, which really takes a very unique, you know, look at how you present yourself in the marketplace when you're seeking a new position. Right. People have lots of difficulty doing things differently. Right. You know, if, right. If I'm right. coaching, you know, let's say a, a VP about uh, making a cold call. Um, or not sending out the resume first, making the cold call, then arranging the interview without the resume. Right. 
people have difficulty <laughs> not doing things the old way. No, listen, I I had some interviews for my company this past week. I was hiring some new positions, and, and I was shocked at some of the people who came in for interviews. They came in in ripped jeans and dirty sneakers and no resume, and I, it just... It it never ceases to amaze me. I don't know. Um, well, when I impre- first impression means everything, as you know. Oh, absolutely. Well, when I wrote "Win Without Competing," I talk about the things that employers look at when they interview you. Right. And I recall a situation when a CEO was interviewing someone in our office and started looking at his leg as the sock started to roll down the leg. <laughs> yeah, he was absolutely mesmerized. Uh-huh. And that was the end of it because he couldn't <laughs> get past on the what the man was saying. He just right. couldn't. Uh, the man's leg was crossed, the sock was going down, right. and that was it. <laughs> so, yeah. That's when so I, funny because one of the people that came in to interview me last week with me last week brought in their Starbucks coffee with them. Oh, my. And it was like I couldn't get past them every other word, sipping their coffee and staring at their coffee cup and then plunking their coffee cup down on the table while they were talking. It was such a distraction to me. Well, that's what it is, distractors. Yeah, it, it was like I didn't hear a word they said through the whole interview. Yeah, so but that's a common thing. If a button is missing, right. whatever it is. Dirty that, fingernails. <laughs> dirty fingernails, messy hair. Yeah. Uh, somebody has their cell phone on and it yes. starts to ring. Yes. All of those things yes. distract the employer. When right. I do a search, I present one candidate, the right fit candidate. Mm-hmm. So that that person is flawlessly manicured. Right. And so important. Yes. In fact, Tom Lombardo, the founding editor and chief of WebMD, wrote the foreword to my book in which he describes how together we built WebMD. I had made right. 40 placements with him in the U.S., the U.K., and Canada with no replacement. And he always would comment about how beautifully dressed and groomed my candidates were. Mm-hmm. And well, it's important. And, you know, it's funny that you say that because in my, the young people that I mentor that are out trying to raise money for their projects, filmmakers, whatever the case may be, and at the festival, which I'm very adamant about, I tell people, if you're going to an investor's house or you're going to meet money people and you're trying to raise money, I, I call it the $200 day. Spend $50, if, if you've got an old falling apart car, spend $50 and rent a really nice car for the day to pull up in. Go to a prop house and spend $10 and rent a very nice briefcase. Go to a secondhand shop and, and, and get a Versace sh- suit that's $3,000 that's marked down to $75. Whatever it takes to present that the appearance is important to you because everything should be important to you. Because then in turn, we'll know that our our money will be important to you or our project will be important to you. So I really preach that. So, so important. So what did, so I'm curious, did you say anything to the people that you were interviewing? You know, I just, I said thank you very much and they were out the door. I, I just, 
you weren't <laughs> ready to start mentoring them, no. You, you I know, it, at that point I had seen so many people, um, I, you know, it, it just amazes me. But then, then it's kind of a breath of fresh air when someone does come in, you know, impeccably dressed, and they've actually done research on your company before they come in. So they Absolutely. Know about, they know about you, you know, they know who you are and what you've done. I mean, that drives me batty. When someone comes in to interview for my company, they don't, know, they don't even know one movie we've made. You know, so it's about being prepared. Well, I think a lot of people aren't aware of the necessity of that. For some reason or other, they think it's just going to happen. Right. They don't under- yeah, they don't understand. They have to take charge. Right. They have to manage the process. Mm-hmm. They have to package themselves to pitch. They have to show the employer why they are the one right fit. Right. Obviously, no one that you interviewed recently was able to do that because you said goodbye to everyone you interviewed. Yes, pretty much. I think I ended up with one um, that was a possibility. But I also strongly believe in timing and right place at the right time. But you you have to make that fate. And if you're not out there networking, if you're not out there being seen, if you're not out there, I call it, in the fish pool, you're never going to hook. And I think that is very important for young people. It's important for them to be out networking and going to any event that they can get into and handing out their business cards and collecting other people's business cards and keeping in contact with people as opposed to sitting, you know, putting an ad on Craigslist and saying, I'm a talented writer, hire me. Right. Do you know what I'm saying? So I really, really, and I, which I myself has ha- have had a lot of success. Um, as well. Networking is so, so important for young people, and and a lot of young people don't do it. Well, I think they're doing it via the Internet, uh, you know, through um, the social networking sites, and but don't has, you agree, Dr. Barrow, that there's nothing like a handshake and a face-to-face? Well, that's exactly, that's what I teach when I do my coaching, and that's what I wrote about in the book, and that's what I do when I prep my one candidate that I send out for the interview. Absolutely. Right. I agree with you entirely. Whenever, no some, whenever, whenever someone says... Um, Okay, well, that's great. You know, we'll email each other. We'll have contact over the phone. I said, well, you know what? Even if it's five minutes, I want to come by, stick my head in, and say hello. I I want you to physically meet me and know who I am, even if it's for five minutes. I I, I think that's huge. So, Well, well, I don't think there's a substitute for that. But I do think from having met people at all ages, especially people, uh, let's say, in their 20s now, Many are very uncomfortable talking on the phone and doing the meet and greet that you're talking about because they've grown up in the Internet age. I know. I know. It's the Internet age. You said it. And, you know, ironically enough, my my one business partner that I did Tenth and Wolf and A Month of Sundays and a couple other projects with, he was a very, very wealthy, successful businessman out of Pittsburgh. And he, I don't think we ever emailed each other once. It was always over the phone, always in person. He would hand write me, you know, barely legible notes and fax them to me. But, you know, that was his way of doing business. And the guy was hugely successful. So whenever someone kind of criticizes me about that, I said, you know what? Some people like that. 
They like to see you in person. They like a, a handshake. They they like that personal contact as opposed to just being somebody on the other end of the Internet. Well, I agree with you. I mean, they want to connect, and that's mm-hmm. what you're saying. But I think that we need to do something early on now with children right. to socialize them to want to connect so that oh. they understand that just emailing back and forth is not going to do it. Oh, no, I agree. And don't you remember, I mean, we didn't have... You know, answering services or tell. It's funny. I was just telling one of the kids in my office the other day. I, I remember having one phone in the house growing up, and it didn't have an answering machine. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, that's true. If you that's weren't true. home, you weren't home. You know, you had to rely on seeing people in person, and we didn't have computers. And and who the heck wanted to stay inside? You know, you wanted to be out doing things, and and. So it is. It's a very different age. You know, it's kind of the age of I'm not leaving my room for three days because I'm I'm on Twitter. Or, uh, <laughs> I mean, people tease me. They call me. They tell me I'm in the dark ages at my office, but uh, I don't know. No, I don't think so. But I also think that helps to explain um, the lack of pitching ability when you interview Could be. people right, and how right, they're right. dressing. Remember, they don't need to get dressed up to email people. No, that, you know, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Well, how can we change that? <laughs> well, that's it. We need to get together and discuss it. Yes, there needs to be some sort of, which is something, I, I, ironically enough, I've been talking to some other friends about that are involved in the school systems here in L.A., they don't really have etiquette classes or or etiquette courses or well-being courses or, or things like that to sort of teach people, you know, good manners and, and good grooming and, and, you know, how to be successful and how to get jobs and, and sort of how to, to promote yourself in the world. Nobody has that anymore. It's kind well, of they odd. don't have it because they're functioning via the Internet. Right. Think about it to yourself. They, there's like a protocol of how to do things using the Internet, and that has been the main emphasis. So right. the in-person, which would be part of the larger picture, which would inc- include uh, the telephone, all you know, the in-person networking, all of that has taken second place. So mm-hmm. that's why the other is not being focused on because mm-hmm. people are trying to excel at using the social networking sites. Right, right. And well, at times, too, I think it's just being a bit lazy also. You know, it's easy to just punch a button on a computer and, and type in a message. You know, it's not so easy when you're face-to-face with someone. So That's true. But uh, if you've gotten accustomed to it, right, you're right. – I mean, I was really impressed today – when I was working and um, so kind of ignored the phone as I was getting ready for the show, and then subsequently checked the voicemail, and a fellow had arrived to my office and wanted to introduce himself, who's looking for a job, someone in his early 30s, um, highly successful and uh, lives on the west side of Los Angeles, where we're located, and actually came to the office to introduce himself. I, of course, called back immediately because I was in a state of shock. I mm-hmm. couldn't wait to talk to the person who wanted to come in person to introduce <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah, can I you imagine, so imagine that? I know. Yeah, no, he was very well-spoken, and mm-hmm. uh, we had a, a wonderful chat. 
so um, life is interesting, but we must talk about this further. I think that we need to work on something to help people do the kinds of things that they should be doing to be successful, not just in their careers, but also in their personal life. Very much so. And and again, I think sometimes people equate... Um, you know, etiquette and, you know, good grooming and manners with money. And listen, you, you can have not a dime in your pocket. Books are free. You know, if if you're a little short in the etiquette category, you can always go to the library, you know, and get a book on etiquette. Or, you know, uh, there's just, there's such a wealth of information out there. I, I sort of, I don't like the fall short excuse of, oh, well, you know, my, my parents are uneducated, so therefore I, I'm going to be uneducated. Or, you know, my family doesn't travel, so therefore I'm never going to travel, so I'm never going to have that education. You can do whatever you want to do. That That's the freedom we have as human beings. <laughs> well, whatever what you, you want to do, you can do it. Well, what did oh. Erica John say? She said we create our own prisons. Yes. Very much so. There's no question. So both you and I believe we have no limits. Right. This is outstanding. Hey, if you, I, and I have a saying, if you can walk and breathe, you can do whatever you want. And even if you can't walk, there's still plenty of things that you can do. <laughs> because you're breathing. That's right. So uh, Now I'm curious. Uh, we've talked lots about your professional life. Mm-hmm. And um, we touched a little bit about, you know, onto your personal life early on in the interview. Many of my guests who are soaked in passion um, have some difficulty balancing their personal and professional life. Many say that one runs into the other. What are your thoughts about this, Suzanne? Ah. <laughs> Uh, I think you've just answered my question. What the Facebook question? Um, what's the old saying? Behind every successful woman, there's at least three divorces. Um, you know, I, what can I say? That that that's an equation that I have till this day not been able to solve. Um, I, I guess you know my advice for women who you know have a passion and and want to be career oriented, as, as I had told you before, um, I, I kind of like the healthy selfish term. There's nothing wrong with you know with wanting to put yourself to, not so much first, but but wanting to fulfill everything that you want to do. Does does that necessarily work in a relationship? Um, not always. M- most of the time, it doesn't. Um, I think um, it, the the what's the word for it? The fifty-fifty um, type thing in a relationship is very difficult when you have a passion for your work and you're very career oriented. Your your personal life tends to to have to come second to some degree, and that is very, very difficult uh, for most men to accept unless they, too, are engrossed in a career that, you know, they indeed have a passion for and there is an understanding there. Otherwise, it's, it's a, I certainly haven't been able to, to master it. It's very difficult. Well, I've spoken with many young women who are moving up in their careers who really are going through painful divorces yes because they just they're working round the clock and their husbands just don't understand it and won't accept it right 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 
Well, again, you know, Dr. Barrow, it, it does come down to balance. And are successful women balanced? Probably not. You know, we're, I mean, you have to be, you know, very tenacious and very aggressive and, and somewhat of a workaholic to be a woman and get ahead. Because, you know, unfortunately, a lot of women have to work twice as hard, you know, sometimes to get the things that, you know, I don't want to say that men get, but, you know, we, we have to work very hard. Uh, for things that we want, at least that's been been my experience, and you know, it's just not a good mix for for personal. I, I mean, we we all kind of joke with each other. Well, you know, you you have to get involved with someone in the military, <laughs> so so they're gone for six months. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> an interesting uh, yes, view, yes. a divergent thinking view. I like yes. it. Yes, you know, they go out on the ship for five months, they and, go out on the ship. <laughs> and, they're, and then they're home for two weeks and. You know, that's sort of the, I don't know, me personally, I I sort of like, you know, focusing on my work and doing things that I love and enjoy, and then looking forward to to having that downtime with someone, whether it's one weekend a month or, you know, or or whatever that case is, but but most men don't go for that, so. No, no, most men want you to be there on a daily basis. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Well, that's all right. You're a woman in charge, as they said on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> I like to think that in some ways, but, uh, you know, sometimes you fall a little short here and there. But, uh, you know, I think that's what makes life interesting. If everything just went, you know, way too perfect, you, you might be a bit bored. So I, I don't know. But I also think of you as a win-without-competing woman. You know your core identity. You are soaked in passion. You understand right fits. You compete with yourself and raise the standards against which you measure yourself higher and higher. You manage the process to achieve your goals. You think outside the box. Thank you for joining me today. And I really hope that you come back soon, Suzanne. Oh, I certainly will. This was a pleasure. Good, and I want you to share your upcoming movies with us. Oh, I will. Uh, in the near future. I certainly will. It's been an absolute pleasure, Dr. Barrow. I feel exactly the same. Please join me again next Wednesday, October 28th, at 5 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, for a special call-in career show in which you can take my assumptions quotient quiz to figure out whether you are making erroneous assumptions that are impeding your career success. My guest co-host will be Virgil Holder, Corporate Director of Recruitment at the prestigious Piedmont Hospital in Atlanta. On Wednesday, November 4th, my guest will be Rachel Brill, Vice President of Development at Zoo Productions. In her current position, Rachel manages project development and production relevant to pitches, presentations, and pilots, including the Fox Primetime Game Show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader?, and TV Land's How'd You Get So Rich with Joan Rivers. Archive shows. To listen to archive shows, please visit drbarrow.com. That's 
drbarro.com and click on the date of the show description that interests you and you will be connected to Blog Talk Radio. I suggest Ann Edwards, celebrity biographer, Pulitzer Prize nominee. Sherilyn Kenyon, New York Times bestselling author and queen of the vampire novel, according to Publishers Weekly. Jan Constantine, general counsel for the Authors Guild, who won the landmark copyright case against Google. I would love to hear from you. Please email drbarrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com, or call 310-441-5305. To learn more about the Right Fit Method and my book, Win Without Competing, Career Success, The Right Fit Way, visit winwithoutcompeting.com. For information about career coaching, visit drbarrow.com, and for search services, barrowglobal.com. Remember this trigger tip. Walk down the right fit road, and you will win without competing. Goodbye for now. This is Dr. Arlene, author, Win Without Competing, Career Coach One, founder and CEO, Barrow Global Search, Inc. Oh, my God.